Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yes, ma'am, I have my report ready, but I chose a book that wasn't on the list. Yes, indeed, it was a very good and carefully curated list, ma'am. And no, I'm not trying to be a pain in the... Tookus, was it? I just thought the Straniacs... I mean, the class might be interested in hearing about one of the most bizarre, influential sci-fi narratives ever to come out of the heyday of the 60s and 70s counterculture. Yes, ma'am, I can see where doing a show about a book from 47 years ago might tell younger listeners that the decrepit Gen Xer responsible for this podcast is obsessed with his birth era to the detriment of his show's reach and impact with younger, more vibrant demographics. And yes, before you ask, I also agree that this classroom conceit, so clearly ripped off of beloved children's cartoons dating from that same period, only make this critique more apropos. But still, I've got this big, heavy book that I did all this reporting on. Good point, ma'am. It's actually three books. The Eye in the Pyramid, The Golden Apple, and Leviathan. But they were all published at the same time and are generally regarded as one long story. And that 800-page doorstop is known as the Illuminatus Trilogy. Good ear, ma'am. There was an implied exclamation point after Illuminatus, which is a small part of its widely recognized charm. Even better question, ma'am. It so happens that we're in the middle of a long... Some would say too long. Ma'am, can you ask Dana to stay quiet while I give my presentation? Yes, ma'am. But can I still pull the football away when he tries to kick it at recess? I knew I could count on you, ma'am. Thank you. As I was saying, we're in the middle of an extensive set of shows about secret societies, which we're about to wrap up with a few on the Illuminati. But we also just put out, as far as we know, the first ever two-and-a-half-hour hybrid podcast episode and concept album, an idea so over-the-top and time-consuming that it completely threw off the rest of our schedule. So, to ensure that we weren't shortchanging our audience, I decided to take our discussion of this very weird set of novels, which we were going to include in the upcoming Illuminati subseries, and put out the first of this new style of show, which I threatened to start doing a while back when we changed over to the shorter show format. No, ma'am, I don't know if anyone except me cares this much about explaining the rationale for taking a break from our ongoing series to do first the 9116 album and then this Paranoid Strain book report show, but this is honestly the only way that I can get to sleep at night, so please, cut me some slack. Yes, maybe I should talk to a professional about my desperate need to over-explain myself. But in the meantime, with your permission, I feel like I should instead start over-explaining this book, which is much too heavy for my ten-year-old arms to keep holding up here in front of the class. Do you mind if I... 
put it down and proceed? Thank you, ma'am. So anyway, as I was saying, I'm Fearful Jesuit, and I welcome all of you to the first ever Paranoid Strain book report on Illuminatus by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. It is time for the Paranoid Strain book report for all the dicks and chains. A new adventure on every page. Let's pretend we went to the In case the intro didn't make this clear, we're briefly interrupting the flow of our long, luxurious, currently 20 parts and counting Secret Society series to tell you all about a big, overstuffed science fiction book. And why exactly are we doing that? Well, as Young Jesuit indicated in the opening sketch, we're in the midst of creating something that is so over the top, so awesome in both its brilliance and the absolutely heroic amount of work required to bring it to fruition, that its production is getting in the way of our other efforts. We know you already heard the 9116 album by now, but you hadn't when he was writing this. And of course, the most significant of those efforts is our quest to deliver a final set of definitive chapters for the current series, laying out the basis for the many, many Illuminati conspiracies that have been driving paranoia about all-powerful, invisible world manipulators for the past 250 years or so. But those episodes take time, and the rock opera project was a huge time sink. So, to try to keep the sweet, sweet content stream chugging along, we're delivering a standalone discussion of a work of fiction that relates to our conspiratorial raison d'etre. That is, the legendary counterculture sci-fi trilogy collectively known as Illuminatus, as written by two Bobs, Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. He'd like us to note here that while there are definitely two men who collaborated on these books, one of them, Robert Shea, seemed finished with the topic of science fiction conspiracy tomes after the publication of this series, while Robert Anton Wilson continued writing in a similar vein for the next 30-plus years. So inevitably, Wilson is going to end up being our avatar when discussing most of the book's themes, the only one of the duo we'll hear from in our clips from interviews, etc. Okay, so let's get started. What is Illuminatus? Exclamation point! Good attention to detail, Dana, but we'll skip the explicit titular punctuation reference in the future. But again, what is this book? It's a very dense, deliberately confusing trilogy of novels published simultaneously in 1975. Since publication, the book... From here out, we're just going to talk about Illuminatus as a single novel, as except for page counts and chapter breaks. The division of the narrative into three seems arbitrary. The single volume is the only one you can find these days, and they certainly read as if they were intended to all be of a piece. There's arguably an actual plot arc to the first of them, I and the Pyramid, but the second and third, that is, The Golden Apple and Leviathan, respectively, make absolutely fuck-all sense except as extensions of the first part. I mean, they only kind of make sense as a unified whole, to be honest, so quoting from them as separate entities is pointless. In fact, the second and third books pretty much run one into the other, and the third one is only about 160 pages of story, followed by 80-plus pages of self-justifying appendices. Yeah, she's right. We haven't been able to chase down a good reason for why the books were published separately in the first place, but we're gonna guess it has to do with being able to charge more for three short paperbacks than for one long one. 
Adding to the confusion, both Bobs insisted that they wrote the books years before their publication, in the years 1969 and 70. And good Christ, does that time frame feel just about right? Everything about this story just screams that it's being written as the summer of love gives way to the post-Altamont, post-Manson family, early 70s paranoid cultural hangover. So, how did these Bobs come together to produce this thing? Turns out the two of them were both writing for the Playboy Forum, that is, the letters to the editor section that, during the magazine's heyday, was devoted to discussions of important topics in a rapidly changing society. As Wilson himself put it, civil liberties, the rights of the individual, and abuses of government power. As you might expect, this high-minded feature, existing as it did in a publication that alternated required reading essays, interviews, and stories by the giants of the post-war intellectual world with pictures of big honking titties, attracted a large percentage of erudite nutters. Right. And these letter writers, Baroque conspiracies, as Wilson put it, inspired him and Bob Shea to ask, suppose all these nuts are right and every single conspiracy they complain about really exists. So they pulled a reverse Jesuit? With a twist. And though that's a difficult maneuver, right up there with the triple Lindy, and they certainly didn't stick the landing, there's plenty of interesting stuff they did accomplish. Okay, enough preamble. What is this book, or three books, or whatever, about? I was afraid you were going to ask that. Oh, and spoiler alert for a nearly 50-year-old book, I guess. We're going to talk about the plot, such as it is. But I think you'll see the plot itself is virtually an afterthought here. It's just a long build to a big conflict that provides some Hollywood pyrotechnics at the end. It is not, however, the reason to read this thing, which you probably should. Or even better, listen to the audiobooks, which are narrated by an array of talented actors that help listeners keep track of the overwhelming number of major and minor characters through excellent vocal performances. Now, the reason to read it is because it's stuffed to the gills with imaginative, paranoid, and hilarious digressions, questions about the nature of reality, an insistence on never settling on a single narrative, and the satisfaction that comes with doubting the answers that others hand to you. So, Jesuit bait. Obviously. But it would be weird if I didn't at least try to summarize the plot such as it is, so here goes. Two New York detectives investigating the bombing of the offices of a left-wing magazine and the disappearance of its publisher stumble upon a pile of research said magazine had been conducting into a frightening idea, that a powerful group called the Illuminati has been working to control world events since the beginning of human civilization, and that they are building to some huge and terrible event in the coming days. At the same time, George Dorn, a reporter for said magazine, is arrested while on assignment in Texas, and placed in a cell with the assassin who was tasked by a mysterious cabal with shooting Kennedy back in 63. Though someone else took the shot instead. Not Oswald, of course. Dorn is freed by the Legion of Dynamic Discord, a pro-chaos terrorist organization dedicated to fighting the Illuminati's mania for order. Their headquarters is a giant gold submarine piloted by a lunatic named Hagbard Selene, who's accompanied by two hot chicks, one white, one black. Interesting power fantasy. Yeah, we'll come back to the horny shit. Selene's group is only one of the anti-Illuminati organizations who all cooperate with each other to at least some degree. Another is the Justified Ancients of Mumu, or Jams, which I think is also known as the Erisian Liberation Front, or ELF, though it's hard to recall exactly. This is getting complicated. Yeah, and the Jams leader is John Dillinger. Wait, the gangster? Yeah. Wasn't he gunned down in front of a theater in, like, the mid-30s? Well, it turns out a doppelganger was gunned down because the real John got tipped off before the whole shooting gallery started. 
Oh, and John Dillinger is actually one of quintuplets, all of whom are named John Dillinger, and several of whom show up at various points during the novel. Why is it important that a seemingly dead gangster be alive 35 years after his death to lead the justified ancients of Mumu in this story? Beats the fuck out of me. Anyway, the Legion, the Jams slash ELF, and some other groups all in one way or another embrace chaos in their battle to thwart the Illuminati's plans. And they're allied with the dolphins. The football team? The aquatic mammals. Naturally. Yeah, Celine uses his giant computer, first universal cybernetic kinetic ultra micro programmer. First universal kinetic. Ah, he named the computer fuck up, didn't he? He sure did. Through fuck up, the humans can talk to the dolphins who periodically sing their epic poems to the submarine's occupants in a bravura display of authorial self-indulgence that's on a par with Tolkien's endless relating of the poems of Tom Bombadil in The Lord of the Rings. A character so pointless, he didn't even make it into the extended versions of the movies. Anywho, there's a bunch of potentially world-ending stuff happening simultaneously, all set in motion by the Illuminati. These include the release of an incredibly lethal form of anthrax, a strange Lovian international incident over an island off the coast of Africa called Fernando Poo. We assumed this was a fictional place, but it turns out it's real, though the actual island's name is Poe, not Poo. So, clearly, the authors of Illuminatus aren't above a bit of potty humor. No, far from it. But it turns out that these first two incidents are simply a cover for the real event that's going down, where this new, bigger-than-the-Beatles band called the American Medical Association is holding a huge outdoor rock festival in Ingolstadt, Bavaria. Not coincidentally, of course, the headquarters of the actual historical Bavarian Illuminati back in the 18th century, as we'll cover soon. It turns out the rock festival is actually a giant occult ritual designed to use the sinister vibes created by the band, whose members are in fact four of the five highest-ranking members of the Illuminati, to raise an army of dead, well, by that point, undead, Nazi soldiers, complete with tanks and shit, who will then murder all of the young people attending said concert. The fear and terror of these dying kids will in turn allow a group of elderly Germans, including one with odd facial hair, to achieve immortality. I'm sure I don't have to guess how you would describe set facial hair and its relation to his nose. Not if you listen to this show regularly. All of this Sturm und Drang is being done in service of immanentizing the eschaton, a concept that's repeated throughout the novel but doesn't originate with it. It's a theological term, referring to the idea of bringing about the kingdom of God on earth. Though in this case, it's more like placing the whole world under the domination of the Illuminati and their unspeakable, otherworldly, Cthulhu-esque overlords. Suffice it to say, the Illuminati's plans, as Robbie Burns might say, gang aft aglay, as the pro-chaos forces and dolphin allies manage to wreck the Illuminati's shit with good old sex magic. Jesus, this thing sure is of its time, huh? Oh, that barely scratches the surface of the sheer 1970-ness of this narrative. But it's not all crazy conspiracies in third-rate zombie Nazi Gotterdammerung. It's far more overstuffed and overcomplicated than that nutso plot summary just implied. There's a whole James Bond parody running throughout, starring Agent 00005, who is brought to life with an excellent Sean Connery impression in the audiobooks. And who doesn't seem to have any real importance to either the plot or the themes. It's just another piece of cultural ephemera that the Bobs can shove in, so they do. There's also an Ayn Rand parody that runs throughout the novel that substitutes the title of her pay-in to bad writing, non-consensual sex, and selfishness. Atlas Shrugged for the much more fun-sounding Telemachus Sneezed, and the crushingly banal mystery around the identity of her novel's asshole hero, Who is John Galt? With Who is John Gilt? 
Essentially, anything that was in this cultural zeitgeist at the time these guys were smoking grass and shooting the shit after hours in the Playboy offices makes it into the book. I mean, if you think I need an editor... And you wouldn't be alone in that opinion. ...then these guys need a fucking lion tamer. Still, the book, at its best, is super fun. And not just the conspiracy stuff, which we'll dig more into in a moment. There are a few tricks they pull that seem designed to make the casual... Or stoned... ...reader think that he's experiencing deja vu. Take, for example, this section, where they pause a scene of high political dudgeon to sketch the character of the book's version of the President of the United States. He was, in fact, characteristic of the best type of dominant male in the world at this time. He was 55 years old, tough, shrewd, unburdened by the complicated ethical ambiguities which puzzle intellectuals, and had long ago decided that the world was a mean son of a bitch in which only the most cunning and ruthless can survive. He was also as kind as was possible for one holding that ultra-Darwinian philosophy. And he genuinely loved children and dogs, unless they were on the site of something that had to be bombed in the national interest. He still retained some sense of humour, despite the burdens of his almost godly office. And although he had been impotent with his wife for nearly ten years now, he generally achieved orgasm in the mouth of a skilled prostitute within 1.5 minutes. He took amphetamine pet pills to keep going on his gruelling 20-hour day, the result that his vision of the world was somewhat skewed in a paranoid direction and he took tranquilizers to keep from worrying too much. The result that his detachment sometimes bordered on the schizophrenic. Most of the time, his innate shrewdness gave him a fingernail grip on reality. Kind of funny. But then, a couple dozen pages later, when the story eavesdrops on a high-level meeting of the Politburo, the book has this to say in sketching the Soviet premiere. He was, in fact, characteristic of the best type of dominant male in the world at this time. He was 55 years old, tough, shrewd, unburdened by the complicated ethical ambiguities which puzzle intellectuals, and had long ago decided that the world was a mean son of a bitch in which only the most cunning and ruthless can survive. He was also as kind as was possible for one holding that ultra-Darwinian philosophy. Okay, cut it short. They get it. They go for the hat trick when they get to the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party and describe him this way. Please don't. I won't, but it's pretty clever. While the Bobs are having fun, they're also occasionally ambitious. They're only sporadically successful in this ambition, but there are interesting hints of Joyce-esque narrative experimentation, including a number of points where character perspectives emerge out of a voice that speaks from the collective unconscious. The book begins with a narrative point of view that's kinda omniscient, but eventually it coalesces into our first viewpoint character, a 60-something detective named Saul Goodman, with the following Numbly, dumbly, mopingly, gropingly, out of the dark. I find and identify a body, a self, a task. Goodman, I say into the receiver, propped up on one arm, still coming a long way back. The conceit of the narrative voice as a representative of collective unconscious dipping one by one into characters' minds continues throughout. For example, at the end of the first long chapter... The book's chapters are actually called trips, as in the first trip, the second trip, because of course they are. There's this scene that implies that the same narrative voice has caused a young woman to live through the perspective and actions of all characters and incidents in the book up to that point as a result of her first tantric orgasm. Stop. I believe you. This stuff was written by two horny guys working at Playboy. Yes, indeed. But back on that point, the interesting collective consciousness thing, shorn of all the horny shit we just mentioned, barely has room to breathe because the bobs are always looking for another gag. But while the book is often a shapeless and confusing mess, that very shaggy unruliness may have been the whole point. Wilson, in particular, was a lifelong devotee of the idea that hewing to one particular narrative, interpretation, or ideology was the source of much that was wrong in the world. 
Here, in an interview near the end of his life, he explains this perspective when asked for his advice to young people. If we all said maybe more often, we were like a stark staring sane. <laughs> he was in failing health and seemed to have trouble breathing. So to clarify, what he said was, if we all said maybe more often, the world might go stark staring sane. And that notion, above all, is really the theme of the book. When it comes down to the conspiracy part, which of course for our money is the main draw, you may end up feeling, well, ripped off for want of a better term. Because by the time you get through the many revelations, interpretations, double crosses, and cheap tricks, you're not really any clearer about what the big conspiracy is supposed to be than you were when you started. At least a half dozen times, the whole plot stops so that one character or another can explain the real history of the globe-spanning conspiracy that threatens all of reality as we know it. In each case, the tale is provided in detail, with specific organizations, or even individuals, called out as primarily responsible. And the good guys and bad guys are clearly laid out. In a conventional thriller, this would be the hinge point of the plot, where our mystery finally comes into focus, and from which our heroes can finally marshal their knowledge and skills to oppose the overwhelming evil that threatens humanity, the planet, reality itself, or what have you. For example, that long scene in The Da Vinci Code that we tore apart a while back in the Priory of Cyan episodes. But in Illuminatus, each of these moments serves only to poke holes in all of the previous versions of the real story, while introducing new, hitherto unidentified allegations, groups, events, and key figures that this new version insists are integral, and that any explanation that fails to account for them, i.e., all of the previous versions, is merely a smokescreen hiding the truth. Well, that's all well and good, but it also sounds like these guys built a foolproof narrative defense against accusations of self-indulgence. They sure did. God, I admire them. But they went even further than that. Within the book, one of the characters who works for the left-wing magazine whose bombing is the inciting action of the plot is actually tasked with reviewing a book that is clearly the book in which he himself appears. And he hates it. In other words, they anticipated the critique of their self-indulgence and wrote it into the mouths of one of their own characters. Devious and brilliant. That would be like creating a podcast and then having a different person's voice issue critiques of the narrative midstream within the show itself, thus licensing him to indulge every dumb idea that comes into his head, knowing that a sensible voice will immediately state the very criticism that the listener would, thus diffusing any impatience at the narrator's harebrained, hey, wait a minute. Sorry, no time for that unicorn. We have to give our listeners some examples. Here's an excerpt from the first time that a character is trying to piece together the grand conspiracy. In this case, it's that detective we mentioned, Saul Goodman. Fra Dolcino, 1508, Roshinaya, Saba, 1090, Weishaupt, Assassinations, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Major Daly, Cecil Rhodes, 1888, George Washington... Choices. 1. It is all true, exactly as the memo suggests. 2. It is partly true and partly false. 3. It is all false, and there is no secret society that has endured from 1098 AD to the present. Sounds less like he's piecing together a theory than something around in the dark. Right, which leads him to this conclusion. Sounds plausible, so said ironically. 
But it also sounds plausible to say the Illuminati is a Jewish conspiracy, a Catholic conspiracy, a Masonic conspiracy, a communist conspiracy, a banker's conspiracy. And I suppose we'll eventually find evidence to suggest it's an interplanetary scheme masterminded from Mars or Venus. Don't you see, Barney? Whatever they're really up to, they keep creating masks. So all sorts of scapegoat groups will get the blame for being the real Illuminati. He shook his head dismally. They're smart enough to know they can't operate indefinitely without a few people eventually realizing something's there. So they've taken that into account. But that's just the first version, right? Exactly. Later on, we get a version where the Illuminati are actually the good guys and have been fighting against the chaos-spreading enemies of reason for centuries. An interpretation that would make all of our main characters pawns in the hands of that Hagbard Selene guy and his golden submarine. Then there are versions that focus on the actual historical Bavarian Illuminati founded in 1776 by Adam Weishaupt, dissolved and outlawed in that region by a series of edicts in the 1880s, and which we'll cover in depth in our final Secret Societies episodes. They keep coming back to this topic throughout, but here are some representative ruminations on Weishaupt. They're what happened when the Enlightenment of the 18th century collided with German mysticism. The correct name for the organization is Ancient Illuminated Seers of Bavaria. According to their own traditions, they were founded or revived in 1776 on May 1st by a man named Adam Weishaupt. Weishaupt was an unfried Jesuit and a Mason. He taught that religious and national governments had to be overthrown and the world ruled by an elite of scientifically-minded materialistic atheists to be held in trust for the masses of mankind who would eventually rule themselves when enlightenment became universal. But this was only Weishaupt's outer doctrine. There was also an inner doctrine which was that power is an end in itself, and that Weishaupt and his closest followers would make use of the new knowledge being developed by scientists and engineers to seize control of the world. The ancient illuminated seers of Bavaria would saddle mankind with a dictatorship that would last forever. The Illuminati, after staying above ground long enough to recruit a hardcore membership from Masons and Freethinkers and to establish international contacts, allowed it to seem that the Bavarian government had suppressed them. Subsequently, the Illuminati launched their first experimental revolution in France. This eventually leads to one of the strangest suggestions in the book. You remember when that stoner in your high school history class brought up the fact that George Washington, among other founding fathers, grew hemp? A.K.A. the devil's lettuce? And that furthermore, Washington noted in his diary that he planned to separate the male hemp plants? Not good for smoking, joking, or midnight toking. From the females? Which are absolutely Steve Miller compliant. Well, the book suggests that the reason for those facts is by that point in his life, the guy writing this diary and smoking the presidential doobage wasn't George Washington at all, but rather Adam Weishaupt, who had made his way to the U.S., murdered its most famous citizen, and impersonated him, eventually becoming the Illuminatus who served as the very first U.S. president. Where do they get this idea? They, uh... Made it up. Based on what exactly? That Washington and Weishaupt kind of look alike. They do? Not really, no. And to be fair... To be fair... To be fair... To be fair... This allegation seems clearly to have been put in by the Bobs as a joke, which, surprise, surprise, didn't stop the dumber, more doctrinaire conspiracists out there from turning it into a staple of conspiracy thinking to this day. But back to the many versions of the big conspiracy in the book. 
There's another one where the Illuminati are made up of scientists who are driven by their obsession with reason and order to force the most disorderly thing in the universe, human beings, into a more sensible civilization by any means necessary. Including mass murder, etc. There's another one, entertainingly related by a priest, that implies that the Illuminati are a group of crazed mystics descended from our old friends, the Gnostics. See our reality show number two, the one about Philip K. Dick, for an exhausting overview of the Gnostics. Uh, Dana, the script reads, exhaustive overview. Yeah, but it's over three hours, and I stand by my editorial choice. Mean. Yeah, we're not going to re-explain Gnosticism here, but it's essentially the version of Christianity that lost out when everybody was deciding what to believe in the first few centuries after the religion was founded. And it connects up with the Cathars, the sect that was rubbed out by the Catholic Church in a murderous campaign called the Albigensian Crusade. They've got their own section within the Secret Society series as well. Point is, the priest relates the story of a version of Gnosticism remembered as the Cainites because they revered Cain. Their first murder and fratricide, according to the book of Genesis. Because, well, we'll let him explain. Mystics are all a bit funny in the head anyway. The priest added cynically, which is why the church locks them up in mental hospitals and euphemistically calls these institutions monasteries. But I digress. What you're interested in, I guess, is Cainism and Manichaeanism. The former regarded Cain as a specially holy figure because he was the first murderer. You have to be a mystic yourself to understand that kind of logic. The notion was that by bringing murder into the world, Cain created an opportunity for people to renounce murder. But then other Cainites went further and ended up glorifying murder, along with all the other sins. The credo was that you should commit every sin possible just to give yourself a chance to win a really difficult redemption after repenting. Also, it gave God a chance to be especially generous when he forgave you. What is all this to do with atomic energy? Why is Satan called the Lightbringer? So plunged on, convinced he was on the right track. The Manichaeans reject the physical universe. The priest said slowly. They say that the true God, their God, would never lower himself to mess around with matter. The God who created the world, our God, Jehovah, they call Panergia, which has the connotations of a kind of blind, stupid, blundering force rather than a truly intelligent being. The realm which their God inhabits is pure spirit of pure light, Hence, he is called the Lightbringer, and this universe is always called the Realm of Darkness. But they didn't know about atomic energy in those days, did they? The last sentence has started as a statement and ended as a question. That's what I'm wondering. So said. Atomic power releases a lot of light, doesn't it? And it sure would immanentize the eschaton if enough atomic power was unleashed at once, wouldn't it? So this version leads our detectives to think that the Illuminati might be a cabal of Satanists determined to detonate a nuclear bomb to honor their god, Lucifer. This is a complete misreading of Gnosticism, as pieced together laboriously by real scholars from fragmentary evidence. But again, this is in many ways a very silly book, so let's let it slide. Regardless, you can see that the real story that's supposedly at the heart of Illuminatus is a very slippery beast. And that's before we even get to the flashbacks revealing that the whole thing dates back to Atlantis. By the latter portion of the first volume, the real history of the Illuminati has been traced back to pre-pre-pre-pre-made-up prehistory, when an advanced race of hairy man-apes lived an idyllic existence on the Lost Continent until one mutant, hairless ape dude named Gruad Greyface decided that this go-along-get-along hippie society needed some serious shaking up and ended up summoning some sort of elder god named Yog sothoth This is a rip from the weird, influential, super interesting, and yet quite racist cosmic horror fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. 
When that fails, he launches a rocket into the sun, which sends out a flare that destroys Atlantis, which Gruad has decided is irredeemable. As Atlantis falls beneath the waves, a primitive humanity is guided from the shadows by the order-maintaining Illuminati initiated by Gruad. So the real history is this Atlantis bullshit? No, not at all. Eventually, among other things, you find out that while four of the top Illuminati are indeed the Germanic anti-human lunatics in the American Medical Association band that's trying to kill all the hippie kids at their rock festival, the fifth secret one is none other than Hagbard Selene, who is also the head guy in the Legion of Discord with the Golden Submarine. And in some sense, Selene, the double agent, is taking advice or guidance from Gruad himself, who is still alive in the present, but in the disguise of this weird conspiracy mystic who calls himself the Dili Lama. After the plaza where JFK was shot? Bingo. And according to Gruad himself, his original role was not to destroy Atlantis, but to encourage its people to think for themselves, and to warn them of the natural apocalypse that was about to destroy them. He was ignored, and then in retrospect, vilified. Is there any reason to believe this version of the story is the true one, even within the confines of the book's fiction? Not particularly. So what's the actual point of this fucking book, then? That's basically it. The authors want you to reject what anyone else tells you and just think for yourself. But putting it that bluntly robs the book of its many, many virtues, and the hilarious and provocative scenarios that ensue. For example, consider this scene where one of the pro-chaos anti-Illuminati characters is undercover at what amounts to a right-wing white supremacist rally where all kinds of paranoid nationalist policies are full-throatedly supported. Pretending to be one of the faithful, he proceeds to fuck with a true believer, sending him even farther over the edge than he had previously been. Another thing that bothers me. Why don't we ever challenge the spherical Earth theory? Huh? Look, Jai said, if all the scientists and eggheads and commies and liberals are pushing it into our schools all the time, there must be something a little fishy about it. You ever stop to think that there's no way, just no way at all, to reconcile a spherical Earth with the story of the Flood, or Joshua's miracle, or Jesus standing on the pinnacle at the temple and seeing all the kingdoms of the Earth? And I ask you, man to man, in all your travels, have you ever seen the curvature anywhere? Every place I've been is flat. Are we going to trust the Bible and the evidence of our senses, or are we going to listen to a bunch of agnostics and atheists in laboratory smocks? Tadek stared into space for a long moment, while Joe waited with suppressed excitement. You know something? Kotex said finally. All the Bible miracles and our own travels and the shadow on the moon would make sense if the Earth was shaped like a carrot and all the continents were on the flat end. Of course, it can make you sad to reflect that this scene implies that nobody, even in the world of this absolutely absurd novel, could even imagine believing the world was flat back in 1975 when it was published, but still, big fun. Well, that's all well and good, and Lord knows that we could use more critical thinking skills these days, as the show's many preoccupations continue to demonstrate. But isn't the book's don't-believe-anything stands at odds with the accumulation of real knowledge? The slow and steady way that science has built proof upon proof to deepen our understanding of the real world? What about the painstaking work of archaeologists, anthropologists, geologists, evolutionary biologists, and others to expand and concretize our understanding of what actually really happened in the history of the universe, the solar system, the earth, life, human evolution, civilization, etc.? Now we've reached the point where the authors, especially Wilson, and your podcast host, part ways. The book is very Rashomon. Everybody tells opposing stories about the Illuminati and the various pro-chaos groups, and it's a neat antidote to the fanatical self-assurance with which adherents to various ideologies were fighting it out in the late 60s and early 70s. 
In that sense, Illuminatus takes a very punk rock stance. A pox on all your houses, you're all full of shit. One of the more mystical characters summarizes this way. Everything in life is a hallucination. Everything in death, too. The universe is just putting us on, handing us a line. But as Dana pointed out, taken as a life philosophy, that way lies madness. Wilson spent decades looking through the mystical, conspiracist, and rationalist approaches to understanding the world, and ended up declaring himself an agnostic in the most fundamental sense. Given the various ways of gaining knowledge, scientific rationalist, conspiracist, mystical, fantasist, and, if he were still around, no doubt, the universe as a simulation version. His attitude was, I don't believe any, which, cool flex, bro. But he certainly seemed to turn to doctors and the scientific method when he got sick in his old age. Low blow, Jesuit. You're right, and I'm not speaking ill of the dead, especially someone whose work has given me so much pleasure. But in addition to being a super interesting guy whose iconoclasm was in many ways admirable, like the fact that he was a hardcore libertarian who still had no love lost for that quasi-cult leader and nightmare person Ayn Rand, all of that raw... That stands for Robert Anson Wilson and his universal shorthand for the man among his many fans. He had throughout his life a sort of pugilistic attitude to groups who sought to investigate paranormal and other out-there claims using the tools of science. For example, there's this group that formed in 1976 called PSYCOP. That is, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. Or, you might as well just call it, Jesuit Catnip. Yes, indeedy. These folks were among the first to start applying rigorous, skeptical criteria to the explosion of touchy-feely, woo-woo, paranormal bullshit that was sweeping through the culture in the mid-70s. The heyday of charlatans like the spoon-bending asshole Yuri Geller, the Church of Scientology, and other purveyors of, as the late, sorely missed James Randi would have put it, flim flammery. I love them so much. Which is where Raw and I disagree rather starkly. Wilson wrote a whole book about how much he hated these guys, temperately titled The New Inquisition, in which he accused those who insist on the primacy of science over other methods of knowing of being the new idolaters, presumably worshipping at the altar of scientific materialism and ignoring other options that don't fit into their worldview. Which is what my new book, uh, The New Inquisition, is about. It's about fundamentalist materialism. I know it's more fashionable to attack fundamentalist Christianity right now, but I thought the fundamentalist materialists have been getting away with too much and somebody should uh, reveal their more notorious bloopers. I assume you all know what I mean by fundamentalist materialism. It is that school of materialism which is like unto fundamentalist religion in that it is absolutely dogmatic and sure of itself in all respects and has no doubts about anything. Its main uh, propaganda arm in the United States is the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. Though they're opposed to all forms of mysticism, they have their own mantra, and it works just like an ordinary Hindu mantra. It quiets anxieties, it stills the restless mind, it ends the perpetual inquiring and questioning and wondering, and eventually it stops thought entirely. Uh, their mantra is, it was only a coincidence, it was only a coincidence. Was Nobody likes a know-it-all, but the popular skepticism movement that arose during the 1970s was, as we just noted, a reaction to the enormous popularity at the time of all sorts of evidence-free woo-woo. Compared to the ink spilled over the intervening decades on breathless testimonials to everything from remote viewing to past lives, the number of publications and skeptics arguing, well, maybe not, has always been a small but admittedly influential response, as Wikipedia quotes Carl Sagan in response to Raw's accusations. To my knowledge, no skeptic compels belief. New Agers are not being called up before criminal tribunals nor whipped for having visions, and they're certainly not being burned at the stake. 
why fear a little criticism? Aren't they interested to see how their beliefs hold up against the best counter-arguments that skeptics can muster? Now, does Raw have a point about the scientific establishment often being stodgy, resistant to new ideas, and exclusionary, especially of women and non-white practitioners? Absolutely. As legendary physicist Max Planck noted, science progresses funeral by funeral, as a generation wedded to current perspectives is replaced by a younger, less dogmatic group. But to quote another often heard truism, the only thing that has ever corrected science is more, better science. And the idea that you shouldn't privilege repeatability, verified results, or accumulated scientific knowledge over wild, unsupported mystical suppositions, as Raw seems to suggest, is virtually indistinguishable from the arguments that tell you to do your own research. Via random Googling of websites run by unqualified yahoos. Instead of getting fucking vaccinated for COVID. But look, all of these important caveats aside, we think this is a book you'd enjoy reading, and that, taken with a healthy dose of skepticism, Raw has plenty of smart stuff to convey in his work outside of its pages. We haven't even gotten into some of the book's many ideas that have made their way into one subculture or another. Like the Fnord, for example. This is a word that is inserted throughout news reports and other material. Readers have, through hypnosis conducted in public schools, been conditioned to become agitated when they see the word, but also not to be able to process it consciously. In other words, they react whenever they see it, as they do every time they pick up their newspapers, but they don't actually know that the word is there. Those who have been liberated by Hagbard or the other chaos agents can suddenly see and therefore ignore these words, and therefore don't suffer from the anxiety that the powers that be are trying to inculcate to make the populace easier to control. Clearly, this is a nice bit of satire on the histrionic style of many news reports. Is your dishwasher trying to kill you? Find out tonight at 10. The Bobs also note that advertisements never feature a Fnord because the Illuminati want you to channel the anxiety they produce into product purchases. Eventually, this word became a mainstay of tech and early 90s internet culture. And on that subject, we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that many of the concepts and expressions found throughout this book are based explicitly on the work of mid-60s pranksters Carrie Thornley and Greg Hill, authors of the seminal Principia Discordia. But we'll deal with those guys and their Operation Mindfuck down the line. Oh shit, we almost forgot to mention that the book seems absolutely obsessed with this very weird but true thing that happened to gangster Dutch Schultz on his deathbed in 1935. And that's because, over the 22 hours that elapsed between when he was shot by rival gangsters and when he finally flatlined, Schultz rambled in a weird, dying, hallucinogenic fever dream that the cops, hoping they could draw some useful information out of him, dutifully copied down for posterity. How does this apply to Illuminatus? Because the sheer length, complexity, and nonsensicality of Schultz's dying words make them perfect for authors who are attempting not only to incorporate the mafia into their grand conspiracy project, but also to imply that Schultz himself was an initiate who was accidentally revealing all of the most secret secrets on his way to the big cannoli in the sky. Uh, Schultz was a gangster, but not an Italian. Artistic license, unicorn. Now, this is, of course, ridiculous, and frankly, the portion of the book that is dominated by Schultz is pretty tough to get through, as it takes the Bobs some contortions to produce scenes designed to corroborate or accompany their conspiracist interpretations of Schultz's ravings. And for a sample of said ravings, we'll briefly excerpt a rather excellent short film you can find on YouTube titled The Last Words of Dutch Schultz. Please, let me get in and eat. Let him harass and bother you. Don't ask me to go there. I don't want to. Get him out of my way. Meet my lady, Mrs. Bigfoot. Sure, 
was in trouble. Bears were in trouble. And I broke it up. Oh, you pick me up, darling. Please, you know me. Louie, didn't I give you my doorbell? Oh, sir, get the dollar roofing. Please, you can play jacks. And girls do that with a softball. And a boy has never wept nor dashed a thousand kittens. So, if the whole thing didn't work that well in the novel, why did you bring it up? Well, mostly because in their position, we would have been sorely tempted to do something similar. Their maximalist urge, the desire to put everything they've ever heard about conspiracy topics in one big experience and unleash it on an audience, it's something we can really identify with. And while the result of their efforts is kind of a mess, it's also frequently thrilling, always provocative, and in its good-humored suggestion that readers not take any conspiracies too seriously, it's a great antidote to the paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Also, we'd love to have you sign up for our Facebook group. Just type the show title into the search bar and look for the terrified eyeball. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Willem UFO is the greatest podcast episode artist in the business and will fight anyone who says different. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next time, we're talking about the real Illuminati, as well as the weird versions dreamed up by conspiracists. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically. otherworldly Cthulhu-esque overlords. I know Cthulhu, you <laughs> derp. <laughs> you think I never played Call of Cthulhu? Is your dishwasher trying to kill you? Find out tonight at 10. Maybe it is. I mean, I don't I can't understand that. I missed American news coverage. <sighs>